Thanks for tuning in to PS Voice. In today's episode, we sit down with Chris Patton, the last British governor of Hong Kong and the chancellor of the University of Oxford. Up for discussion today, Brexit, European populism, and Hong Kong 20 years after the handover. In this first section, we discuss Britain and Brexit. So, Chris, can we go straight into the, the heat of the uh, Brexit debate at the moment? All memoirs uh, are full of anecdotes and witty observations, but unlike a lot of them, your book has got some quite deep thinking about the political trends that are going on in the world and in this country in particular. And one of the trends which is most common, which is maybe like a red thread that connects a lot of the memoir, is the, this theme of identity politics. To what extent do you think British politics is now identity politics? I think it's lurched in that direction. At the same time as that's happened in Britain, uh, we've seen, and not least thanks to uh, uh, President Macron um, and Angela Merkel, uh, and indeed the uh, Conservatives in uh, the Netherlands, we've seen moves in the other direction. So, so I think there are some very good things going on. But what we've seen in Britain is the same sort of um, descent into nationalism, um, which is very different from patriotism, um, that has um, affected America. Uh, and I think that's happened for a number of reasons, um, one of which is the lack of any opposition to English nationalism on the part of the Conservative Party. I think this is very largely the result of a crisis within the Conservative Party. Let me say one thing about identity politics and what exactly I mean. People very often say about political science as though there was such a thing, that the very first question is, who are we? And people like Samuel Huntington um, describe identity politics as a cultural clash or clash of nationalities, as though human rights weren't universal, as though people were much the same everywhere, although with different histories and traditions. We are a collection of eyes. And each one of us is slightly different. And what I wanted to do was to approach this subject from my own point of view and point out how my own life and background and identity were a complex. But could, I mean, that's one of the most interesting things about the, the report, because you were part of a government with a prime minister who famously was the patron saint of the eyes. She said there was no such thing as society. And when you talk about the, the Brexit result, you say that the main cause of it is the, the Conservative Party and that their attempts to try and blame Jeremy Corbyn, but that they're far-fetched. I mean, how, how much, how does that work? Well, I, th I think Brexit is a consequence uh, not just of two calamitous decisions made by British Conservative Prime Ministers, but I think is a consequence of failed attempts to manage the right wing of the Conservative Party. And this goes back to the 1990s. It goes back particularly um, to our um, having, to be, having to leave the uh, exchange rate mechanism. Um, it goes back to the problems that John Major had and tried bravely to handle uh, of managing the right wing of the Conservative Party, but some of them are unmanageable. Um, they're dogmatic um, rather than uh, about these issues rather than um, believing in fact. I mean, they, they have faith. Um, it's, you know, they have faith that you can replace our largest market with selling things to Australia. Um, or, or this or that Commonwealth country. I mean, it's all complete drivel.
The negotiations have just started and uh, we are talking about hard Brexit, soft Brexit, Brexit. So do you think they could be, we could have um, a good Brexit? Well, a good Brexit would be no Brexit. Um, and when I say that, um, tabloid editors, I'm sure the Daily Mail and others, um, would say that shows I was a saboteur a um, or an enemy of the, enemy of the people. <laughs> when, when people <coughs> say to me about the Brexit result, get over it, I'm not going to get over it. It was the worst thing to have happened politically in my lifetime. Worse in a many, many respects than, than Suez, because Suez was the end of a period. Um, this was an attempt to replace that colonial past with a real European do future. You, do you think that it is now um, irreversible? Do you think the fact that Theresa May has been weakened so substantially means that, that even the question about whether we leave the European Union might be open to question? I think it's unfortunately um, very difficult to see that happening. But what I can imagine are circumstances in which through um, sensible diplomacy on, Brit on the British side and the, and the willingness for a change to take on the tabloid tabloids and the right-wing press and with a certain generosity of spirit on the um, European Union side we could arrive at what um, Philip Hammond the Chancellor of the Exchequer who is one of the few grown-ups in the government describes as a slope rather than a cliff um, a situation in which you have um, transitional arrangements um, which make take some recognition uh, of the importance of of Europe to us and of us, us, us to Europe. There are all sorts of things which are going to be affected, which will affect Europe as well. For example, the importance of our higher education and research se sector in the European mix, um, which, which nobody's thought of any solutions to. So there are all sorts of things uh, which I think should encourage um, the uh, other European countries, despite the fact that we're so tiresome, um, to behave well to us, provided we um, behave well to them. And now, populism and Europe. I just that. want to ask the question about Macron, Emmanuel Macron. Do you think that the fact that we have Emmanuel Macron in France right now, just at that particular time, it's a good thing? I think it's, it's a, a great thing because um, it gives people who believe in the political process and in the importance for democracy um, for the first time some real reason for um, feeling encouraged um, he was, uh, of course people will say he was lucky, but he was also extremely brave. Uh, and the sort of things he says about um, the way the world works, I can't imagine myself disagreeing with 1% of them. Um, decent, um, civilised, extremely um, well-educated, and with wonderful diplomatic manners. That visit that Mrs May was invited to make just after the election, um, was his idea, um, he behaved impeccably to her, he didn't patronise somebody who just had a terrible um, uh, beating up uh, at the electorate's hands. I'm a commander of the Légion d'honneur, I love France, I'm a, I'm a genuine Francophile. Um, so I know some of the problems that, that, that he faces, but um, I think it's in all our interests that he um, overcomes them, and he's more likely to overcome than anybody else I can think of. But there's French problems, but they're, they're kind of wider European problems, and in a way the Macron-Macron axis symbolises the, the great new hope for the EU. Yeah, but it, it's can it, do you think it can work? Well, it can work, I think, if um, Angela Merkel 
listens to um, President Macron rather than finance, finance minister Schauble. Um, yeah. I, I think that um, the well, You point Eurozone out in your book that, that debt in German, Schulden, is the same yes. word as guilt. Yes. Which is, uh, also links up with your general um, <laughs> slightly religious uh, um, framing of the... Of I'm not religious about economic policy, <laughs> I can tell you. But I, 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 th I think... Do you think that, uh, that there is any chance that Merkel's actually going to grant fiscal and transfer union that, that Macron needs and to get rid well, of Schäuble? No, not to get rid of Schäuble, but what the Germans have to do is to be a little more flexible. Um, and they have to be more flexible um, about um, issues like um, issuing a European bond. The Greeks are in a position which is impossible. They can't possibly um, dig themselves out of the hole they're in um, unless they have debt relief. And if the Greeks can't do it now, how are we going to deal with the Italians um, before very long? So I, I'm not suggesting um, that you should abandon, abandon any notion of, of fiscal rectitude. I'm not saying that you should take on the populist press in Germany by saying, well, the Greeks can retire 10 years younger than you and get bigger benefits and, we won't, and, and we'll go on bailing them out from that. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying um, is that we, it should be possible to be more flexible in the way that the Eurozone is managed. And I think um, uh, President uh, Macron should be able to convince Angela Merkel of that, because otherwise um, you'll continue to have a position in which the Germans are blamed in Southern Europe unfairly, uh, to some extent, for everything that goes wrong. Macron is here, is like a hop for some people like you, but the, the roots of populism is, are still there. So how can you address this kind of, of problems? I mean, migration, uh, well, one, one unemployment? Thing, one thing that... Um, um, Macron clearly wants to do is to make the labour market more flexible. France should be a lot richer than it is because French productivity is so high. France produces in four, by Thursday evening what we take until Friday evening to produce. Um, now, it does so with a labour market which is incredibly inflexible. So it doesn't create as many jobs as it should so that people in, in run-down areas don't get the employment opportunities which one would um, like to see them getting in, in for example, the northwest of, of France. And who gets blamed for that? Um, Globalisation gets blamed for that, and, and immigrants get blamed for that. Um, the real immigration problem for Europe hasn't happened yet. Uh, over the first half of this century, we see, we'll see um, the population of Africa increasing from a billion to two and a half billion. In, st in states, many of which have failed, um, uh, in states which not only export their problems environmentally, but their people. And unless we actually address that issue now, um, th the present rumpus about immigration will be as nothing in comparison with what people are worrying about them. And finally, Hong Kong and China. One of the big themes in the book is, uh, is Hong Kong and China and your role as the last governor of Hong Kong. You say in the book that you thought that the steady introduction of democracy would guarantee Hong Kong's future freedom. How confident do you feel about that with Xi Jinping in power now? Well, that well-known Democrat. Yeah, I mean, the people who said that democracy was going to save Hong Kong from 
and a squeeze after 1997 were, of course, the government after the joint declaration. You look at the speeches made in the House of Commons, and when people, remember George Robertson, the, f the, the man who went on to be NATO Secretary General, um, making a speech about this, how can you guarantee that Hong Kong's freedoms, Hong Kong's autonomy, um, will last beyond 1997, and he was told it was because we were going to develop democracy there. And then we went slow on that. I was, I was attacked for um, the small changes I made, all of which were within what had been agreed with China. Um, I was, I was uh, congratulated as I was Thomas Paine um, or uh, Danton. Um, actually, what I did was simply try to make uh, elections free and fair. Um, so we didn't do as much as we should have done, and now it's not only a question of the Chinese having choked off any further democratic development, but they've been attacking the rule of law. They've interviewed, they've intervened in judicial cases um, uh, in Hong Kong. They've abducted people from Hong Kong streets. Um, there's been a steady throttling of the freedom of press, of the press, um, and all those aspects of the sort of software of democracy, which which have been so important in Hong Kong, um, they've found very uncomfortable. So 20 years after the handover, uh, does Britain have any responsibility towards the Democrats there? Well, we have, we have a legal responsibility and a moral responsibility, and the rest of the world has a political interest. Let me explain. Our legal and moral responsibilities are because the joint declaration, the guarantees to Hong Kong, are set out in an international treaty lodged at the United Nations. Uh, which should guarantee Hong Kong's autonomy and way of life until 2047. Treaty. Um, and as international lawyers would say, pacta sunt servanda. Um, it's there. We had certain obligations to the people of Hong Kong before 1997, uh, which we told the Chinese we would honour. They have obligations to the people of Hong Kong after 1997, which they have to explain to us that they're, and the rest of the world that they're honouring. Um, they behave as though the joint declaration didn't exist, as though it was a Chinese um, declaration. It's an international treaty. So we should be honor-bound and legally bound to point out when they, in the spirit or the letter, breach that. The, inter the interest for other people is, is a very simple one. Um, China is going to play, no doubt about it, a big and significant role in the 21st century. When we reach agreements with China, will they keep them? When I negotiated with China, people used to say, oh, well, it's very difficult to negotiate with them, but at least they keep their word. Yeah. Th that is, frankly, faith-based, not fact-based. Absolutely, because, I mean, you've see, just seen in Hong Kong uh, that the government, the Chinese government managed to resist the so-called umbrella revolution. They've now appointed a chief executive. I mean, is there anything that the rest well, of the world can, can do? You can see it even beyond that. I mean, I was part of the negotiating team with Pascal Lamy, um, for China's WTO access. Um, and uh, the obligations that they made, that they undertook uh, in order to become members of the WTO, they've slithered away from so that they have access to our markets in terms of goods, in terms of investment, yeah. um, uh, without giving us the same access to theirs. So how can on that point, on that point, President Trump is absolutely right. So do you think that's the, the way to deal with it? I mean, how, how, what can the rest of the world anybody do? Is dealing. I don't think anybody is dealing with it. But I, what could I they do, given the, the, the speed okay. of Chinese growth, the size of the economy, the self-confidence which they have, the way that they're changing geopolitics in every single part of the world because of their economic presence? Well, then, it, it's, it's, it's a runway of showing that you're self-confident. 
um, to lock up anybody who ever um, offers a word of, of, um, <laughs> of criticism. It's an odd way to show your self-confidence by banning yellow umbrellas in Beijing because they were the symbol of, of these kids were using, these very brave um, young men and women were using in, in Hong Kong. I think the, the extraordinary thing about China is that despite its very welcome economic development, despite its huge economic growth in the last few years, it doesn't have a very large global footprint. Um, who, are, who are China's friends around the world? Um, There's North Korea, uh, Pakistan. Uh, yeah, um, um, Zimbabwe, Venezuela, and occasionally a country where they've sunk so much money that it feels it has to go along with them, like Greece recently. So I'm, I'm, I'm not um, awfully convinced that um, uh, the future lies only with China. I think China so has, to, has to work with others and we have to be in a position where we can believe what they say. So Hong Kong could be a test to I see think if China is a responsible superpower. I, that's exactly my view. Um, Hong Kong should be a test not only of, um, Hong, of uh, China's ability to keep its word and willingness to keep its word, but also goes right to the heart of lots of issues which matter enormously to the world in the 21st century. How much should um, uh, a sense of human rights play a role in foreign policy? What's the relationship between economic freedom and political freedom? All those and other issues um, are uh, very much the sort of things which will be determined in a place like Hong Kong. So in the book you say uh, whether the arrival of a Trump presidency will smooth Chinese diplomacy at the edges will be a defining issue in international affairs. One needs to be an optimist to think that President Trump and President Xi will bring out the best in each other. What, what do you fear is actually going to happen? Well, what I fear, at least for a time, is that they both um, behave like, sorry, to, to, this is going to sound a bit academic, they both behave like Athens um, in the Peloponnesian War. You may remember in Thucydides' brilliant account, he talks about the Athenian delegation which goes to a very small state called Milos. Um, and tells the Melians that they've got to join up with Athens, otherwise they're in big trouble. And the Melians say, but we don't want to do it. Want to. We don't want to uh, take part in the war. And the Melians and the Athenians say to them, just get real. In this world, the strong do what they can, the, suffer, suffer what they, the, the weak suffer what they must. And that's, that's a world that, <laughs> in, the, in the second half of the last century, we put behind us. Yeah. But that's the world which... I'm afraid both President Xi and President Trump seem to represent. Okay, I've got one final question to you about the, the title of your book. It's, you've called it First Confession. And I don't know that you have many political sins to atone for, but if there's one thing that you would do differently again, what would it be? Oh, I know exactly what, what it would be. And it's a very personal thing. It's not a political thing. Um, I got into university very early, when I was 16, I got a small scholarship to Oxford. Um, and I had the opportunity of leaving school at 16 and having a year and a half before I went to university. And instead of taking that and going off and learning to speak French better than I do, or learning to speak Italian, or learning to speak German, going around the world, I stayed on at school in order to be captain of everything. And I think the only time when you really have um, the freedom and liberty to learn about another language or learn another culture is when you're young because you, you never have the time later on to do it. So my biggest regret 
um, is that I was captain of the school cricket team. So that's, that's almost as, 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 uh, as minor as, as Tony Blair, who in his long memoir uh, looks back and, uh, for things that he regretted and he kind of casts over the Iraq war and other things and says that he regretted banning fox hunting and freedom of information. If you had to choose a, a political thing that you, that you really regret or that you'd do differently now, what would it be? Well, I suppose it would be um, that I spent so long um, when I was governor of Hong Kong trying to negotiate the things which the Chinese were never going to agree on. Um, there are some things which I've been pleased to take a stand on, like the issues that we had to resolve when I was chairman of the Commission on Policing in Northern Ireland. One thing which was unfortunate wasn't really my own fault. Um, I was promoted to the cabinet um, to be Secretary of State for the, for the Environment the year the poll tax came in. So I was, <laughs> I was landed with the responsibility for the most unpopular thing that's ever happened in this country is Mr. Black Death. Um, and that was a sort of hospital pass, as, as um, rugby players would say. Um, so that was unfortunate. It wasn't really my fault, though. OK, well, Lord Patton, François Bougon, thank you very much. And thank you for watching PS On Air. I hope that you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to PS Voice. Go beyond the news with Project Syndicate by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and by reading our greatest minds at www.project-syndicate.org.